All right, we're live. Welcome to the Q&A. The first question today is about AI um, in general, but more specifically, I'm going to hijack the question to talk about the mark, not the mark of the beast, but the image of the beast uh, from Revelation. And I'll explain why in a minute, why I want to like highlight that topic. But let me just read to you guys the question as it came in. And um, this one's anonymous, but it says, what are your thoughts on chat GPT and AI in general? As Christians, should we be concerned about this type of technology? Is it okay to experiment with, or should we steer clear? Um, in general, <laughs> everybody's talking about uh, AI. Everybody's talking about all this stuff right now. And I don't want to pretend for a second that I know more about it than I do. I, I know a little uh, like this much about like a big ocean of content. Um, I'll just say a few things that will not help you learn all about AI, but just maybe give you at least my perspective on it. And then we'll talk about the image of the beast. And is is Revelation's image of the beast, which we'll read the verses in a moment, uh, is that, you know, should I think that that's an AI thing? And, and if so, should that make me scared of AI in general or leery or wanting to steer clear of it. So um, there's good and bad. AI, I, I think in general, that the simple synopsis for it, that you don't have to understand a bunch about AI to know this much, is that it's good and bad. It's a very powerful tool. And it's a series of a whole huge variety of tools, and they're very powerful. And anytime you have a powerful tool, you have the potential for good and the potential for bad. So like a, a scalpel is a powerful tool. It could cause great harm and it can, and it can bring great help. It's it's like that, you know, medical knowledge could enable you to hurt people. It could also enable you to help people. So like speaking of AI, they use AI in medical diagnostics now. Did you know that uh, they've been using it in your video games for a long time? Your your map stuff on your phone uses AI. The search algorithm that brought you to this video uses AI. Like to my knowledge, it's just sort of different versions of AI, different kind of styles of AI are spread all over the place, but it's growing radically. And the question is like, where is it going to stop? Okay. This is a question you have. I have, I don't know the answer to, is it going to stop <laughs> or will you develop this sort of hyper, apparently hyper intelligent, um, autonomous type thing that is actually able to exert a lot more control than most of us would want it to. I, I don't know the answer to that question. So I'm not going to try and weigh in on it as if I do, it's pure speculation. There are some causes for concern, though, that you don't have to know the metaphysical limits of autonomous systems. Like, are they soul? Do they have a soul? Do you consider them a person? Like all that stuff. You can say this much, though, without knowing the answer to those questions, um, which is to say um, the ability of AI to, to, to exhibit control over large groups of people, over their actions, and even over their thinking, their thinking that freaks me out a little bit. And I think it rightly should, okay, for you, you, any human being out there, Christian or not, you should recognize that, hey, you know, AI is running our search algorithms, AI is running, uh, has the potential to run search algorithms, all the stuff that we view online, filter what is and isn't online, and the ability to actually do thought control through controlling all information. That's pretty freaky when you think about it. And that is definitely a capacity that's in there in AI. Do you have to flip the switch and do that? You don't have to, but the fact that it could be done is concerning, obviously. Um, it it allows humankind to be easily manipulated as we move more and more away from a, a place where we use, you know, physical... Um, here's a book Here's a book I had to get for my women in ministry study. Um, anyway, as you get more and more away from physical books like this or like this, here's a first century astrological text I have to read for the women in ministry study. Uh, weird stuff, I know. 
But as you get more and more away from those things and onto digital media, it's easier to manipulate and change that data, whereas it's harder for people to change the data here. So you can't control thoughts as easily. Obviously, there's groups of people that want to control thinking. In fact, this is going on a lot. And I'm with the camp that says we shouldn't let people control our very thinking. We should allow some freedom. So, yeah, but... You know, that's a concern. Um, Should you as a Christian steer clear of AI? Um, I don't I don't think that you even know what that means, most likely, if you're asking this question or like you basically have to be Amish. Like it's 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 except there's a a measure of AI in your life every day or you're Amish or you're like otherwise not using electricity. You're sequestering yourself away from a lot more than you realize. Right. In order to avoid AI. Um, So don't be lazy about it. But. But recognize that it, it's a lot more pervasive than you, you even realize now. And there's an inevitability to it because with companies, okay, this is just my two cents here. Okay, we'll get to the scripture in just a second. So couch this as opinions of Mike, you can feel free to throw away. <laughs> um, but uh, there's an inevitability to AI because right now, like Google and other companies uh, being and stuff, they're racing to get the market space that AI represents. And because they're in a hurry to try to get that market space, they're going to avoid any kind of regulations or any sort of wise restraint when it comes to AI so they can get the money that's at the end of the rainbow. And that financial motive um, is going to drive companies to want to do it. Then there's a control motive that's going to drive governments and other interest groups to want to use AI for things. And so this, these things are converging to like what seems to me personal, total personal opinion here could easily be wrong on something on this. Um, that it seems there's an inevitability towards the uh, abuse, to, towards the expansion and eventual abuse of AI. So we should be aware of these things, but without being um, chicken littles and running around saying the sky is falling. So yeah, use use these things with wisdom. One of the things I'm concerned about that's not a doom and gloom thing, but is the idea, and I posted about this on Twitter, and I even did polls on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube on this topic, is um, the idea of a pastor who basically doesn't teach his own material. He doesn't do his own studying and he wants to, now catch me here, here's the scenario. He doesn't want to use commentaries and even maybe AI to, to like as an as an aid in some sermon prep that maybe there's some usage there, but rather wants to wholesale copy and paste his actual teachings from AI where you could say, write me a 10 minute sermon with funny information, with some good jokes about this passage of scripture or that topic make it a, a three-point alliterated message. You could do this and AI will just give it to you. Then you could maybe tweak a couple things here and there and then go teach it. And I believe pastors are already doing this. Maybe one of you watching me is already doing this. And I think you're you are um, you're, you're failing in a horribly embarrassing way if you're doing this right now, if that's you. I believe that. And I ran polls on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube asking people if they found out that their pastor who was teaching them was getting their sermons from a third-party source, whether it's AI or buying them online, because you can buy sermons. You could get a whole book of sermons. There's a year of sermons you just teach right through the book. If that was the way they were getting their sermons, rather than uh, basically using that to avoid their own personal studies, not an aid, but as a replacement for their personal studies, how would you feel? And it was like the vast majority said, I would very much disapprove of this if I found out my pastor was doing it. The sad reality is some of those churches their pastors are doing that. Some of those people who voted, they don't know that their pastor hasn't taught an original sermon in years. And um, I think that this this turns pastors into um, people who don't know the Bible anymore. 
Now you might think, but I studied the Bible for years, Mike, and I know it, I know the scriptures. But if you stop studying the Bible for years and you're just regurgitating other people's data and you're preaching other people's sermons so that you could spend time doing, oh, but I'm doing other pastoral work. That's, I'm glad you're doing the other stuff, but you know, you should not neglect this either. Um, if you do that, I think you're like a train where the power has been cut off. That is, when you first start just preaching other people's sermons, say AI created sermons, at first, it's like a train that's got its power cut off. Well, it's a big train. It's got a lot of momentum. You've got years of your knowledge of scripture and everything. So you keep moving along at a pretty good pace, but you are beginning to slow down. And a week later and a month later and a year later, you've been doing this routinely where you just copy and paste and you don't think it's that big of a deal. You've justified it in whatever way you've, you've got in your head. But after a while, that train slows down and comes to a stop. And this is you when you realize you don't understand the scripture very well. You're not even sure about the, the, the biblical veracity of the things you've been teaching from the pulpit. You no longer even have the ability to vet and think through these issues very well because it will fade if you do not keep sharpening that sword. It will get dull. If you do not keep putting coal in the engine, that train will slow down. You, you can't replace your personal study time. You can't. Now, it shouldn't be the only thing you do as a pastor, but you need to do it. Okay, so here's the question about the mark of the beast. Uh, or the, the image, I said the mark, uh, uh, the image of the beast. Let's look at the text of scripture here and see how it might relate. So Revelation chapter 13, I'm backing up a little bit to the beginning of the, of the chapter here. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This is not meant to be a literal beast. I, I take, I'm going to give you, I'm not going to explain and defend all my interpretations here. I'm just going to give you my opinion about this. Feel free to disagree. There's lots of other interpretations of Revelation. I have a video I will link below where we talk about different approaches, post-mill and ah-mill and, and the, the, the futurist or pre-mill view. Um, so I saw a beast uh, rising out of the sea with ten hordes, seven heads. This, this beast is a political kingdom with a particular ruler that seems to be in charge of it. That's similar to the beasts in Daniel where you have like Alexander the Great and his kingdom represented by this creature, this leopard, that sort of thing. Um, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And so that actually connects to Daniel, leopard, bear, lion. Interestingly, um, in, in there's some, some not complete, but some parallels there. Um, and to it, the dragon gave its power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon here is, is meant to represent Satan, I believe. And now he's, Satan has his chosen world leader is effectively what's happening here. Uh, one of its heads seems to have had a seems seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Okay, so there's some sort of like miraculous type healing. Could I mean it, it implies it's miraculous? It's not clear. I'm guessing it's miraculous, but some sort of like you should have died, but you but you were healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Okay, so the world is submitting to this to this uh, this leader. And they worshiped the dragon for he'd given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. This is the great tribulation period, I believe. Uh, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and, and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed. Notice it's it's always the, the there's all these permissions that are being given. God's allowing this to take place, but he'll put a stop to it. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. 
Okay, they're going to worship, but this is not just a political kingdom. This is a religious thing too. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain, of the life, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, he must, must he be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay, the, the, the big thing here, the big driving thing to dealing with this beast who is inspired or, you know, empowered by Satan to be this world ruler who's going to be worshipped. Basically, it's like, a, it's like a worship of Satan, effectively, um, <clears throat> is that saints would not bow to it, saints would not yield to it, and the saints would stay true in their faith in Christ no matter what the consequences are, no matter what the cost is, no matter how painful or even, even death, if death comes, that they would stay faithful. Now we get to the second beast, and this relates to the image. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. This one is also called the false prophet, identified as the false prophet, I believe, in Scripture. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Uh, maybe it's somehow, well, okay, I don't want to get too deep here. So uh, it spoke like a dragon. Um, it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence. In its, so the first beast is still there. This one's, what is he doing? He's making the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So he's like a religious leader, you know, wrangling the religious worship and the religious nature of this kingdom to worship the beast, this, 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 uh, this evil antichrist character. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make, and here's the image, an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So he does miraculous signs and deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs and then has them, the people who dwell on the earth, make an image for the beast. There's an actual creation of like an image. Okay, so the thought is maybe this is like an AI, an AI model, an AI thing that's made. Okay, but image back in the day, okay, let's see, if you read this in the first century, you obviously would not know anything about computers or AI, wouldn't have been a conception in your mind. You would have read this and your natural thought is image is referring to an idol. An idol that is used in worship, this, that, you know, an image rather that's used in worship, we're talking about an idol. There's some kind of idol that's given here. But there's more details here that some people raise their eyebrows on. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. <clears throat> okay, there's there's a speaking capacity that this idol, this idol idol type thing has, this image has, and it has the ability to enforce in some way punishment of death upon those that do not worship this image. So it, it's as though you come to the image and the image itself has a way of judging whether you are worshiping it or not and then punishing you if you don't. What could this be? Well, with the advent of, of technology of AI and stuff like this, you know, some would say, well, this could be this could be an artificial intelligence idol, an idol that has AI technology in it, that's able to speak and communicate and propagandize people. And when they, they come before it and they have to like offer some sort of statement of obedience to the, to the, to the idol and, and to the beast, uh, whoever that is. <clears throat> and then if they do not, do, do not offer this, there's some kind of alarm that goes off and they get killed. Um, that is a, here's what I want to be, just be, just be cautious and, and in, in a few ways and say this. It's reasonable to think that that could be a way of fulfilling the words we just read. It is unreasonable to think that will 
be the way of fulfilling the words we just read. You see, could be, but but is, is okay to say, but will be is not okay because there's other reasonable constructions of this as well. It could be a supernatural thing that's happening, not some sort of AI-generated thing, some sort of natural technology thing, in which case it wouldn't have anything to do with AI. Others have thought maybe, um, may, you know, it could even be technology that's being used, but it, but having a breath and having the ability to judge might refer to it being able to speak and refer, referring to it to be able to, to respond to people, whether they give worship or not. That doesn't exactly require like high level artificial intelligence to do that, right? Well, like they go up and I, I and for the beast, I, I put my thumbprint down and that's me declaring that I worship the beast. Okay. That's just a really simple program. It wouldn't really require AI for that. Um, do you see what I'm saying is like, could be, doesn't mean will be. And and when people go from could be to will be on prophecy, which happens a lot, <laughs> way too much, uh, that that is when they start to, uh, respond to potential futures as if they're, je- if they're guaranteed futures. And the, if you look with, if you have some humility, I think, and okay, you guys, you're going to, some of you are going to be like upset with me for even calling this humility. I think this is proper humility because it's just self-awareness. If you look at history and you see um, what different Christians have said in especially recent history about, say, the mark of the beast, the image of the beast, about the fulfillment of Revelation and how they were confident that, like, these locusts are attack helicopters. Okay, I don't see the text doesn't make that clear. That's total conjecture. But they felt confident that they were, which means that it should have already happened back in the 80s, but it didn't. And so... That ended up making things look a little awkward for people. Or if you look back and you say how um, the mark of the beast, which has been subject to more speculation than just about anything else, um, the Antichrist and the mark of the beast are the two things that people always try to figure out. And when I was young, very, very young, uh, I was watching uh, this 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 Left Behind movie that came not, not the current Left Behind series. I'm talking about like, it, was, it must have been made in the 70s, like before I was born. And... This movie series, this movie, I think it was just one movie, uh, you know, had the You've Been Left Behind, had that song in it, you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, the ba- barcodes were the mark of the beast. Now, I'm like a little hesitant to try to convince people that barcodes are the mark of the beast, but barcodes were suddenly in every store and on every product, and you couldn't do what without it? You couldn't buy or sell without barcodes. So barcodes are the mark, and some people went out in there and they said, hey, you know, th- this I heard too from serious, serious teachers. They were like, barcodes have two big lines in the middle, two big lines in the end, and two big lines at the beginning of a barcode. And each of those two big lines, the long ones, they represent the number six. So every barcode says 666. So when you get a barcode on your products, that's that's the mark of the beast, like right here, right here on the back of this book. Um, I don't think that's true, <laughs> uh, but the problem is we sort of moved on from barcodes now. And so they say, okay, well, maybe credit cards. Credit cards are the mark of the beast. Why? Because you can't buy or sell without it. No, it's social security numbers are the mark of the beast. Even before barcodes, they were saying this. So some people were trying not to get social security numbers. And you start to see why some Christians make us all look like we're a little paranoid, right? I'm not. Most of you are not. But there's a minority who really lean into this stuff as if, their conjecture of what might happen equals what will happen, and they become very unwise. I've watched it happen. I've watched Christians embarrass themselves my entire life. Not all Christians, a small minority who have embarrassed themselves very, very publicly and openly on these issues, enough that I have learned the humility that I'm no better at guessing than they are, and I don't want to do that. Right? It's, it's, uh, it's a chip in your hand. 
So that that's a problem. Okay, that's a problem. Could it be? I guess it could be a chip in your hand, your forehead. That's possible. Could it be something else? Yes, it could also be something else. So I should not react to what could be as though it that's what it is. Now, this is all just assuming that that uh, the, the pre-millennial view of Revelation is correct, which I could be wrong about as well. So it's like I'm building my conjecture on top of what I think is the right reading of a difficult book of the Bible here. And um, there's others who have like the preterist view um, or the spiritualist view or, um, you know, the amillennial view, the historicist view, which is not very popular anymore, I don't think. That was like Martin Luther took that and refer- thought it was referring to like the papal system. So I, um, uh, yeah, all that to say, proper humility and restraint says this. Um, I'm not going to go beyond the text. Just because it could be doesn't mean it is. Um, the scripture here, Revelation 13, and the other passages that talk about the image of the beast, there's actually not a lot of data we have about it. We know that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's not just an image that talks, okay, as if any AI is therefore the image of the beast. Now, that would be a distortion of what the scripture is saying here. The thing about this image is that it's involved in the worship of the beast, right? This this Antichrist character, it's involved in the worship of the beast, and um, you you have to like actually go and present your worship before the image. So you should not be thinking. And here's the, another thing I'll say because because I'm the interesting thing is is I'm very into Bible prophecy. I very much want to. Uh, like study and learn and understand Bible prophecy. But when it comes to the prophecies that we're, we're waiting on still, I'm very much opposed to guesswork presented as firm, confident, prophetic interpretations um, that I've seen so much in, in, my, in my time. And so I'm just putting my cards out there. I know that I offend even many of my own audience when I say this. I think that it's important enough that we realize this is not the way to do things. This is not how we do how we should do things. Conjecture is conjecture, and you should keep it there. Um, but okay, one more one more thing I'll I'll say here to possibly encourage people or possibly stunt them, make them feel a little frustrated. Which is, um, let's say hypothetically that the image of the beast is AI related, which we don't we don't know, but it's it, it's possible if the pre mill view is right. <laughs> if if the pre mill view is right, and then maybe maybe it's going to be AI related. Um, if that's the case, that doesn't mean all AI is bad. This is actually pretty important, I think, to point out. If that's the case, it does not mean all AI is bad. It would mean that when AI comes in the form of the image of the beast that you have to bow down and worship to, then it's bad. So when AI is helping your map, con- you know, find you know find whatever location you're trying to get to. That's fine. An example of this, a parallel of this, is the chips, uh, the chip thing. Okay, so I remember reading about the chips and people going like, maybe, the, maybe the the chip in the hand is 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 the mark of the beast. It's going to be the mark of the beast, and therefore a person would think, I'm not letting anybody ever put a chip in me. So, like, let's say you worked in, I don't know, it was Norway or Sweden or something. And they had a business where people could put, get a chip put in, and then they could have access to their work computer and the access to the building through the chip. Um, and it's you know, it's like a form of of ID that nobody can steal from you. You can't steal someone's wallet. I don't have to carry cash, so I can't get have theft like that. And so people responded to this as though that was the mark of the beast because they thought it could be the mark of the beast, so they treated it like it was. This means that I knew some people who had animals, had pets, and they did not want to get a GPS locator chip. Is it a locator chip? I think, I think what they do for our pets is uh, just a um, an identifier. So that if they catch the cat, 
they can scan it and it's like beep it, it it says hey this is who this cat this cat belongs to so you can get a phone call and i knew people who were like i'm not getting those chips put in my cat because follow the logic a chip might be related to the mark of the beast one day therefore i'll treat all chips as if they are the mark of the beast lest i accidentally take it which is not going to happen um therefore my cat can't have a chip put into it that helps find it if it gets lost that's what i'm talking about where we don't want to overreact ai has a lot of great uses and it has some worrisome qualities and we should i think have the wisdom to look at it and handle them both separately like i can use ai for even research and study but i don't use it to replace my research and study and my my preparation while teaching and stuff like that I don't use it to simply replace me. I can use it to aid, but not replace. Um, I, I hope that that provides some wisdom there. When you look at the actual texts of, of the statements, all we have is this. Okay, let's go back to the scripture. There's an image for the beast, which, which has to be a type of idol of some kind, I think, in context. Um, it's given breath which could mean it's given life or the appearance of life, or it could merely mean that the beast is able to speak. So it may not be uh, the, the image rather of the beast is able to speak. So it may not be because breath usually refers to life, but it says it's given breath so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This doesn't necessarily mean it's alive, alive. It might just mean breath is given so it can speak. Uh, so it's given the capacity to speak and then to punishment, bring punishment on those who don't worship it. So that's not a lot of data. Could be related to AI. Could be something else. Lord knows. All that to say, let's go to the next question. <laughs> all right. So um, all taking your questions from the live chat now, as I do every week, uh, every other week right now, every other Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, you guys can load your questions into the live chat. This is the 100th video. Did you guys know this? This is my 100th Q&A. Um, I've done a hundred of these. I just want to say thanks because it's you all who made me do it. I was, I was like Q and A's who wants to watch a bunch of Q and A's. Like, I don't really know. I didn't want to do very many Q and A's initially, but you guys let me know that this was something that you found beneficial and helpful. And I remember listening to like other, uh, Christians who would do like a radio program where they just handled questions a lot and how it did help me help like sharpen just my thought process and my ability to sort of work through and reason through different topics as a Christian. And so I, I now see the value in it more, thanks to you guys. I was going to do something special for the 100th one, and I uh, I forgot. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been an interesting week, so I, I just I forgot I was going to do something. So, yay! <laughs> 100th episode. Maybe I'll do something special for the 200th. Um, all right, so I do have all 20 questions in already. Let's go to question number two. This comes in from Joe Benoli, who says, is it bad to listen to worship music when you're working? I prefer it over secular music, but I also feel guilty for not giving it my full attention. Is this treating it as entertainment thoughts? Okay, several things here. Um, I'll just say first, there's nothing wrong with treating worship music as entertainment. There'd be nothing wrong with that. I find it entertaining to listen to worship music. Like, how would that be wrong? That's nothing wrong with that. Now, it's also even that much better if you're turning and worshiping the Lord while you're listening to it. But it's okay to just enjoy the music. That's nothing. I don't see there's anything you should feel, feel conflicted about there. When you say, is it okay if I listen to worship music when I'm worried that it's I'm, uh, I'm not giving my full attention to my work? 
that's you have to answer that question with with this issue are you being distracted from your work in which case um it's your work is being negatively affected that you you need to not listen to stuff then because that means you're not capable of working well while listening to stuff let alone worship music so that's going to be up to you to, to figure the answer out to that because I've I, at least I've known people who are really good at that kind of stuff like they could listen and double, multitask real well and others who are like I can't even think when someone's playing music in which case they obviously can't so where are you on that spectrum um, but I'll say this too like everything needs to be balanced with wisdom um, let me give you an example uh, it's true that if you were to work alone in a tiny little box isolated from all other sources of information where there's no cell service and there's no other access to internet there's nothing and you were just in a tiny little isolated box and every time you turned away and stopped looking at your work like a little buzzer would go off to remind you to stay focused you'd probably get more work done in the short term but in the long term this would be so detrimental to you and unhealthy for you that it, it would it would be a compromise in other areas that matter i'm giving that analogy to say this um you, you, it, it seems to me, what do you guys think of this? It seems to me you can have a situation at work that's not the optimal. I will get 100% of the possible work done. Maybe it's 95% of the work done, but it's a better work environment, which increases my longevity at this job and increases your ability to continue doing those things long-term um, and, and just better for your health and better for your wellness. And so I, I think that like having a, an office where there's someone who walks by and distracts you um, allowing coffee breaks, allowing things like that, like that, that can be helpful for people in ways that doesn't increase their immediate productivity, but it increases their, their well being, which has a long-term benefit as well. So that all that to say, I could see how, if it distracts you a little bit, that may not be that big of a deal. I'm just a little bit distracted, you know, but if it distracts you a lot, that's a big deal. You have to be the one who figures out the difference. Yeah. So we'll go to the next question. And I'll remind you guys, as we do this, go to biblethinker.org. That's my website. Everything on there is free. The, the website has not only all the videos and all the Q&As and everything like that, but it's organized better than YouTube is. It lets you, you could search for specifically the videos you want. YouTube's been changing their search. Have you guys noticed this? Like you can't find the video you're looking for as, as easily now. Google's also, their search seems like it's not as good as it used to be. Um, so biblethinker.org, we've got our own search system there, but there's two search systems. One of them lets you search for videos. The other one lets you search for topics, like, like not just a video, but a moment. So let's say someone asks me about the tribulation. And if you type that word tribulation, you would get any time I've answered a question on the tribulation to the exact minute, not a two hour video, right? To the exact minute, you'll get linked to the exact spot. So that's called our clip search feature. I don't think I talk about the tribulation much, but it's there somewhere. Um, and you can actually search for specific topics that might bless you and benefit you. Again, there's no ads on the site. I'm, this is just, you know, being presented there for uh for your benefit biblethinker.org the reason why i mentioned this right now is because this is q a number 100 which means we have 2000 questions cataloged just from the q a's then we have catalogs from topical studies and and bible studies and all that other stuff as well so there's just lots of content there all for free free to think about sorry i did not answer question three eric stensrud says is speaking something over your life in quotes speaking something over your life a biblical concept a Christian said something like, quote, if you were going to die in one week, how would you live? I'm not speaking that over your life, though. Ah, I think I understand. Um, 
my basic answer to this question is no. <laughs> is speaking over your life as in um, the mere power of words. Because, because that's the only way that, Satan, that sentence could make sense. Hey, if you were going to die in a week, oh, I mentioned you dying in a week. Somebody could miss, you know, could, could think that I was declaring it like I'm going to make it happen with my words. There is amongst some of the more prosperity preachy guys and, and amongst other non-Christians, uh, new age type beliefs and like Oprah stuff, that kind of thing, where they believe in sort of just the power of words. Like, I'm just going to declare it. And now don't get me wrong. <clears throat> if you're saying like, I'm going to get this job today, I'm going to get this job today, that might bring your confidence level up and have you walk into an interview with a better attitude and with more, with more assertiveness and con con confidence. Um, in which case the confidence had a change in your behavior. And then that resulted in maybe, maybe you ended up with a higher chance of getting a job offer from that person. I'm talking about people though, who, who actually think by declaring, I'll get the job, my words go out into the universe and have an impact on the world around me. And then that's going to sort of cause me to get the job. <clears throat> so name it and claim it. Now, some name it and claim it and they throw Jesus in the mix. Like, I'm going to name it and claim it. And it's because of Christianity that you can name it and claim it. Others just name it and claim it because of the power of the words and the power of the universe and the power of the power of the power. Um, and uh, like in The Secret, <clears throat> those type, that type of thing. People who are sort of pseudo-religious, they usually like this kind of thing, um, in my experience. So is that a Christian or biblical view? Um, no. Uh, no, there, there's there's scripture that talks about the power of words. Um, let me bring up the life and death are in the power of the tongue verse. This is Proverbs 18. Oh, hold on. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. <clears throat> now, this is quoted by those prosperity kind of leaning preachers who will say death and life are in the power of the tongue. Boom. Your, your words create worlds. That's a phrase I've heard before. Your words create worlds. And I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> that's, that's like the most egregious exaggeration you could possibly get. Um, death and life are in the power of a tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's not revealing spiritual secrets of power words and how they control the universe. It's probably just saying that um, that the things that you say with your mouth radically affect the, the way your life plays out, not because of the power of your words to create realities, but rather, let me put it this way. There are people who are divorced now who would never have been divorced had they handled their tongue better because their words brought death to their marriage. There are those who got in a fight and got beat up real bad, who never would have had any altercation if not for their big mouth that got them into a big fight that had them hurt real bad. There are those who started wars and troops have gone to the borders and killed one another because of the words of the diplomats escalating and escalating and escalating until it brought on war. This is a pragmatic, not a spiritual, like supernatural effect of words. It's pragmatic. And you can back up in Proverbs here. It says a man's, to get a little bit more of this, a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth, from the produce of his lips shall he be filled. It's the same kind of thing. Your words are really powerful. 
Um, so statistic, I heard a statistic a long time ago that said that the number one reason why people get fired from jobs is not because of their, um, their inability to perform the job well, but because of attitude problems and interpersonal relationship issues. That's the number one reason people get fired is because of bad attitude because of the words they say. That's a pragmatic view. Um, others would, uh, would say like your words create worlds, right? Because God spoke the universe into existence. But God spoke, so that's telling you the power of words. It's like, no, it's not, you numbskull. It's telling you the power of God. Like God spoke the universe. You don't read Genesis 1. God spoke the universe into existence and think, therefore, speaking is super powerful. <laughs> the here's here's the irony of this. By using speech, by using speech as the thing to describe how God created the universe and created the world. What's happening here is uh, Genesis is highlighting how incredibly powerful God is by using something that is not inherently powerful, speech. Humans should know this. Speech is not inherently powerful, right? Like right now, try it. Just declare, I can fly and then go jump, not off a roof, I tell you. Just jump and see if you stay in the air. Just say it. I can fly. Say it as many times as you want, right? Words are the weakest things. When it comes to actually manifesting reality, words are the weakest things. That's why it's so amazing when God just let there be light, there's light, because he's that kind of power. It's not about the power of words. It's about the power of God using something that on a human measure is a very weak thing, just words. So I think that that's taking Genesis totally out of context. Um, yeah. So when a person says something like this, I wouldn't really highlight it. I wouldn't use it, you know, when they says they say to you, hey, um, I'm not speaking over your life, though. I, I wouldn't take that moment to like, oh, let me correct your misperception here. You're probably influenced by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> like, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Um, but I. But I would say that this is not a biblical concept. You. You can't just declare over my life whatever you want and expect it to happen. Where you have to like, like throw salt over your shoulder, like a superstition thing. Like, oh, careful. Hey, if you were to die, <gasps> wait, oh, oh gosh, I'm, I don't want to. I did, might kill you on accident by saying that because my words are so powerful. Um, I think that that's an incorrect view. Yeah. This is why it's, again, why, uh, like, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not because of the power of words. You calling on Jesus is weak sauce. It's his power that saves you. That's what makes it so wonderful is all I did was call out and he saved me. Right? The power is in him, not us. All right. Number four, Snips says, hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Snips. First uh, Samuel 16, 14 and 1 Samuel 19.9 speak of an evil spirit from the Lord tormenting Saul. How could a holy slash righteous and loving God give him a tormenting spirit? Thank you. Um, I've wondered the same thing. Let's look at the passage. 16.14. So Saul, the, the, just so get everybody on the same page, right? Saul was like the first king of Israel. It was kind of a bad situation. They weren't supposed to have kings. Right after Moses leads them out of the land, they get a judges who occasionally come up, but they're supposed to be governed by God himself, where they don't need a king controlling them and telling them what to do because they will simply read and learn the, the, the law of God and then do it. But because they keep failing and because of all the sin and because of all the rebellion, they ask for a king. So God gives them a king that he tells them ahead of time is going to be a hard, a hard time for them. They want it anyway. So they get Saul. Saul ends up being a mixed bag. He's not all evil, but he's definitely ends up being a bad, a, a bad king ultimately. Um, and so he's rebelling against God in different ways. And so the, the spirit of the Lord in this passage departs from Saul. 
So Saul had had this sort of empowerment from God and this anointing from God to be king. Okay, I'll use you to be king. But because of his rebellions, God departs from him. Right? This is, this is uh, not a salvation issue, I don't believe. This is Saul and an anointing issue. He's anointed to be king and then it's taken away. So, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our masters now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, a uh, player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. Three times here we've heard that this is from God. Okay, so this isn't just uh, something that happened. It's something that, that God has, in some sense, brought upon him. In some sense. There could be different senses. God can simply allow, as he allowed Satan to attack Job. Okay, that's a possibility there. So anyway, David ends up being the guy that plays the harp, and it does bring real help to him, and this distressing spirit departs. But it's not that the spirit of God returns to Saul. It's just that the distressing spirit it, it it departs. It does seem that it's an actual spirit and not just in a, in a metaphorical sense, like a spirit of distress, like, oh, I'm distressed, but an actual spirit because the word spirit is used of the spirit of the Lord and then the spirit from the Lord troubled him. It seems as he's talking about like an entity, some kind of spiritual entity. Um, there's another verse he brought up, which is 1 Samuel 19.9. Let me see here. I'm just, I'm just scanning a couple things real quick because there's more I wanted to mention here. Yeah, let's go to 1 Samuel 19, 19. 9, excuse me. <clears throat> now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing music in his, with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escaped that night. So the, oh, by the way, I'm in the New King James. I wonder how this translation is handled in, say, the ESV harmful in the ESV. NIV doesn't call it uh, distressing or harmful, but calls it an evil spirit. Interesting when you read from multiple translations, isn't it? I I'll bet you were reading from the NIV uh, or maybe, I don't know, probably the NIV when you say in your question that it's an evil spirit. It speaks of an evil spirit from the Lord. So that word evil, even in the NIV, there's a footnote that says it could be harmful spirit. So we usually think of the word evil in English. We typically think of the word evil to refer to moral evil, moral evil. Um, but the even the Bible uses the term evil to refer to like bad circumstances or painful situations, not just morally evil things. So that's why God will bring, according to like say King James Version, I believe, or uh, maybe NIV would be like this, uh, if my memory serves, It'll refer to God bringing like evil upon the wicked man. So does that mean that what God does is immoral to the wicked man? No, it, it, it's here it's using the term evil as a bad fate, as a displeasurous event, you know? So it's a distressing spirit here in the New King James, and it's a harmful spirit here in the ESV. That is probably the easiest explanation for it. Um, is, oh, it's a spirit that is distressing. God is allowing him to be spiritually harassed because of his wickedness. It's punishment for his sin, in other words. Your sin has brought you this distress. Now, it's, is it possible that it's like an actual evil spirit, like the spirit's actually wicked in the moral sense, and that God sends a wicked spirit? 
this feels if if that's if that's the case, then I don't think this is like a moral issue we have. At least I don't have a moral issue with it. Maybe you do. Um, and you can just just be patient with this and think it through. But in the book of Job, you could word it this way: God sent Satan to harass Job. Now, would it be the whole story? No, it wouldn't be the whole story. But it would be that would be true. It seems to me, in some regard, or at least in a way that you can use that in a phrase, and it would be it would be accurate. God says to Job, like, where have you been? He goes, I'm to and fro throughout the years doing my thing. Have you considered my servant Job? And he's like, ah, yeah, but he only serves you because you're good to him. Take away what he has and he'll curse you to your face. And he says, okay, you can, you can, I'm going to take this hedge of protection down off of Job. You can attack him, but you can't hurt his body and you can't, and he gave him limits initially. Right. Um, and he still couldn't kill him in the end, but he did allow Job and not hear his punishment for Job. There was no punishment. This was a, a, a bigger spiritual thing that was going on about the nature of the goodness of God. The goodness of God has been challenged and Job's life stands now as a testimony that God is worth worthy to be worshiped even when your life is terrible. But, but there's a sense in which you could say, okay, God could actually send a harmful spirit in that broader sense of he is the one who could simply not allow I'm not going to let any harmful spirits attack Saul. He's my chosen man. I give him, I'm going to put my spirit there to empower him. Oh, he's really sinning. I'm going to remove my spirit and I'm going to allow wicked spirits, even immoral ones, to harass him because he is in such rebellion to me. I'm going to use the enemy to correct him. I would I would not have a moral problem with that either. Um, and I don't think you should either. So I, I'd be open to both options, though I, I tend to think we should just say it's a harmful spirit not an immoral, evil spirit. Yeah. And you might be like, well, how could God, one of God's angels bring harm? You're like, well, those angels, you, if you think they're like, they come with like, uh, like, like, like styrofoam cushions around them so they can't cause harm, then you haven't been reading the Bible very much. All right, let's go to uh, the next question. This is question number five. I love Wayne's world says, since sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, and we will never be fully sinless in this life. How do we not become disqualified from loot from lose? Oh, disqualified from slash lose rewards in heaven. Sanctification is the work of the spirit. Uh, we'll never, we'll never be fully sinless in this life. So how, how is it that I'm not just losing all my rewards? Hmm. Let's look at the, let's look at the passage that you're referring to. First Corinthians nine 27, you say. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I might, I myself should be disqualified. Hmm. Let's back up and read this passage in more detail. Yeah, I'm going to read even a bigger section. Okay. So he's talking about his ministry here. Um, I'm just going to start verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. So he's talking about reward here. So we had to back up and get this in the context. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. Like I'm still accountable. God's still given me and called me to do this. But if I do this with the right attitude and the right heart, I have a reward. But what then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights of my right in the gospel. Uh, this may have been kind of like him saying I'm treasuring, I'm storing treasures in heaven where he's like, I'm refusing the, the pay that is rightfully mine, but I know there's this greater reward stored up for me. So what I, what I give away for free and do for free here, there's a greater reward. That's an interesting thing, if that's what he's trying to say there. For though I, my, I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now look at how he's made himself a servant. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So he behaves as a Jew. It's a very strict lifestyle. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So this is this is a complicated but really simple way of saying it. Can I can I say those two words in the same sentence? The simplicity is um, there are those who are under the law. That's the Jews who are not yet in Christ, right? He became as if he was under the law, though he's not really under the law. He acted as though he was, that he might win them that are under the law so they might be driven to Jesus Christ who fulfills it all for them. Beautiful. Uh, to those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. But just like he's not really under the Jewish Old Testament law, he's not under the Mosaic law, no, he's, he's in Christ, but he's also not outside the law entirely. He's not lawless. He's under the law of Christ. Because Jesus, who fulfills the law so that I'm no longer under it, he also guides and directs me to love one another, to, to walk in the fullness of what ultimately the law was all about, but without actually being under it. Anyway, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. That's actually talking about those who are have more stronger convictions about what they can and can't do. Um, stronger than is necessary, I should say. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may sh- that I may share with them in its blessing. So that, in other words, Paul's like, I don't just go around telling people about Jesus. I will take on whatever burdens they have in their lives in order to preach the gospel to them. I will work myself to the bone so that I can present it to them for free. I will do things that tax me personally. Then he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The wreath is, I think, like the reward that he mentioned before. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified from what? I don't think it's from salvation. I think it's from the prize of the reward. So I would separate salvation means everybody enters into heaven into the joys of the Lord, but rewards in heaven are different, are different and do reflect the things you did in this life works. You're not earning heaven in any regard. But there are, there's, there are rewards that scripture does talk about. Let's see here. Because your entrance into heaven, your eternal life is provided perfectly free by grace. But these rewards scripture talks about are something God desires to give to us in heaven. We're not rewarded with heaven, right? Maybe there's a way to put it to summarize. We're not rewarded with heaven. We're rewarded in heaven. Slightly clumsy, but maybe it will help people summarize. Um, <clears throat> scripture talks about this in a few other places. So, um, in, in, I believe it's first Corinthians where it talks about the, uh, that everyone builds on this foundation of Jesus with wood, hay, uh, stubble, you know, stubble, precious stone, like depending on what you build with, the fire is going to test those works and you can still be saved. If you've worked poorly in your ministry, you can still be saved, but you won't have anything to show for it. Eternally speaking. 
but rewards will be for those who labored well. And so that's what he's calling people to do. Okay, that's, an, I think, an understanding of the passage. And your question is, since sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit and we'll never be fully sinless in this life, how do we not become disqualified from or lose our rewards in heaven? Um, so was Paul's requirement in those passages sinlessness? No, it was sincere and godly service. Paul didn't say you had to be sinless to get a reward. It was what sincere and godly service did you do for Christ? And maybe you did insincere service. That's going to be burned up. No reward there. Maybe you did sincere and godly service, though you still had sins that you committed and continued failing in different in different ways in your life. That doesn't mean you didn't have sincere and godly service that will be rewarded. Were those sins such that they undermined your service? Like your preaching was really because of pride. You wanted to be on stage in front of people and you liked the idea of the power that a pastor might have. Um, okay, that is going to actually burn up the reward itself. Was your sin in, in other areas? Like God knows. God knows. But that's how I'd answer that question. <clears throat> Cody Phillips says, hey, Mike, why do we have to have an ordained pastor to get married? Is there scripture to back this up? If two people make a commitment to each other and God, is that enough? Um, <clears throat> it's coffee time. Back to reality. Okay, so um, <clears throat> there is no scripture to my knowledge. There's nowhere in the Bible that suggests that you need any sort of leader of any kind to get married. None. Now, the Bible also, let me add a few extra things here. It doesn't tell you, here's the format of how you get married. It doesn't also, it doesn't say, you don't need a leader. <laughs> like, like, you need to not have a leader or something like that. It just doesn't model for us. So all we have is a model, not a teaching on how it works. We have a model, an example. It doesn't model for us any involvement of the government or of any agencies or of any sort of approved individuals outside of your own family <clears throat> that you are needed to get married. Now, it does model, in many cases, marriage that is approved of by the relatives, in particular by the parents. So if you were to suggest that there's something required, you might suggest that. But again, I think this is a model and not a requirement. Um, marriage seems to regularly involve in scripture, as, as, as I understand it. Um, so you have one man, one woman. That's every time. You typically have the agreement of their families. And maybe in every instance that, that where there's a family to agree, Adam and Eve obviously didn't have a family to agree, but God obviously, you know, agreed with this marriage. He designed it. Um, but when you have like uh, Jacob going to get his wives, he, he talks to Le, uh, Laban or Laban. I think I always say Laban just out of bad habit. But anyway, he talks to, to, um, to the relatives to get their approval for it. Um, when you have like uh, um, Isaac and Rebecca, there is an agreement of the relatives. And so there seems to be an importance here of the, of the, of the relatives. Does that mean that you, can't, you can only get married? No, I'm just saying that, that if you're asking for what seems ideal, that seems part of the ideal. Now, some would say, well, Mike, that's just culture. Culture just had it that way. And if, if you'll say that, and maybe you're right, maybe it's just reflective of culture, then what you're actually making a case for is perhaps we should look at culture and consider what things culture is saying about marriage. Now, it can't undo, undo say, say, for instance, very importantly, that the nature of marriage is male-female. That is like created by God that way. The model of other things we see comes later. 
But what I'm going to suggest is this. Um, you, I, I guess I'll just shortcut to the end. I don't think you need an ordained pastor to get married. I don't think you need a pastor to get married. I don't think you need the government to get married. I think you need two people who are genuinely committed to each other. One man, one woman. There are no other no other combinations that make a marriage real. One man and one woman. One lifetime. That's the combination that makes marriage. Um, if you are in a community, you probably want to be open and real about this incredibly important central relationship in your life. It only makes sense to at least make sure the community is aware of this. If you say, we're married, shh, don't tell anybody. Is that real? Is that commitment real when it's secret? Right? Like imagine you're hanging out at, at school and someone tells you like, hey, I want you to know you're my best friend. <laughs> you're my best friend, but don't tell anybody. Are they really your best friend? <laughs> if you get married and you don't want the community involved and you just want it to be like the secret thing between the two of you, are you really committed? Is this really a marriage even at that point? So I, I, I think these are questions that come up. So yeah, I, I think that um, uh, even illegally, say in the, in the United States, I don't know what country you're in, but in the US, you don't need an ordained pastor to get married. You could go to the courthouse and get it taken care of. And now it's legal, a legal marriage. You you should, it seems wise to get this legal marriage and not just a commitment that you would say is the bare minimum of what counts as a marriage because of a number of issues. Like for instance, if one of you dies, the other one has certain rights as a spouse. Okay. That's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important. And if, you know, you should probably do that. You'd have to have some really strong reason not to. Um, yeah. I've also noticed that the people I've known who... They 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 sort of fell into marriage where they where they call it marriage, but it's not technically legally a marriage, and they never like had a moment with themselves and their family where they were like, "We're married. This is my spouse. I love them, and I'm committed to them for life." But rather, they were just together, living together for years, and at some point, they just started calling each other husband and wife. I've no I know people like that. They tend to be less committed in those relationships, possibly as a result. Just my own anecdotal observation that's there. Is that really a marriage? Uh, I, I'm, you know, if, if they say that's my wife, I'm committed to them in, in marriage. Um, I'm going to believe that. Okay. I'm going to believe that statement. Uh, why would I not? But I'm concerned about the lack of the, the, honestly, the lack of a sense of formality to it. That seems like it belongs. I, I hope that answers your question. Um, you know, using a, a pastor an ordained pastor to get married, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. I think it's a nice thing. Is it necessary? No, it's weird that we we feel like it's necessary. That's a little weird, in my opinion. Even worse, if your pastor, you feel, has to approve of who you marry. If you're part of a church like that, I'm worried. All right, uh, number seven, Aaron13 says, if we took away the lyrics from music, would there be would there still be such a thing as bad music or evil music? If so, what does evil music sound like? Hmm, deep thoughts with Aaron13. That's a good question, man. Um, are there evil sounds? I don't know that I can answer that in a positive, that there is there are evil sounds. Um, but I think that it also makes it hard for me to say that there are um, good sounds, morally good sounds. Like, it, it just seems to me that music has an inherently good morally good quality but that that doesn't necessarily mean every 
sample or sound of music is inherently morally good. So like, I, 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 I mean, this is an interesting question. I'm not sure if I know how to answer that. I don't have a scripture for you on this. There's, there's statements of using music in specific ways in scripture, like let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150 talks about all this musical stuff being used to praise God. Uh, it doesn't give commentary to my knowledge about, about music being inherently, um, because of its musical sounds, inherently good or inherently bad. There's something, I should say, there's something inherently good about music as a category. I don't know if that means all music is inherently good. That Maybe I'll put it that way. But I do know that if you move away from the moral categories and you just say, do certain sounds affect you in different ways? Yes. Certain sounds pump you up. Certain sounds scare you. Certain sounds raise your anxiety. Other sounds make you calm and make you placid, which could be good or could even be bad in different scenarios. Maybe you shouldn't be calm and placid right now. So there, I, I don't... I don't know how to call that bad music. There might be a time for music that's scary. That doesn't, you know, there might be a time for that. I don't know. Um, what does evil music sound like? Yeah, I don't know, man. Deep thoughts with Aaron 13. You guys can figure that out and let me know. Um, all right. CW says, does flesh equal sin nature? Does flesh equal sin nature? Adam and Eve sinned, even without a sin nature. After salvation, we still have the flesh, Romans 7, 18, but we're dead to sin, not slaves to sin. Does this mean we no longer have a sin nature? Okay, so what you've stumbled onto is a very challenging concept, which is how Paul uses the term flesh, sarks, that's the Greek word, in Romans and in his writings, uh, but in Romans in particular. It's like one of the things translators look at when they go to Romans and they want to see how a, tr a translation handled Romans. They look at how they trans translated the word sarks because it's just a really challenging concept. What I will say is um, Adam and Eve had flesh in that they were made of flesh and bones. But that's not exactly what Paul means when he says flesh in Romans. In Romans, he seems to be talking about flesh as like the seat or the source of the of where he identifies uh, desires that are not yielded to the spirit, human desires that are not yielded to the spirit of God that are sort of conflicting. That's, that's not to say that it's the same as your physical body, but it's in Paul, it seems to me as I read Romans, like it's connected to the physical body, but it's not the same thing as the physical body. So when you say Adam and Eve had flesh because they had physical bodies. It's not the same thing as saying when Paul says flesh, he's talking about what Adam and Eve had before the fall. I think they're just two different categories. Yes, they're similar terms, but in English, we use words like this all the time. You know, there's technical meanings of words. Um, there's like pick. Okay. Well, when you're talking about a guitar, you, when you say pick, you're talking about here, let me see. You're talking about one of these. Okay. This is a guitar pick and it's a technical term relating to guitars when I talk about a guitar pick. If I was to say miners have picks and guitar players have picks, it would be obvious to those who know English really well, miners have pickaxes and we're talking about two very different things. So Adam and Eve had flesh before the fall, but they didn't have Paul's version of flesh. That came after the fall. That would be my understanding of that. Let me read your question one more time, make sure I've understood it. Um, does flesh equal sin nature? Um, and, um, and my answer there is like, at least, yeah, like flesh certainly seems a lot like what we mean when we say sin nature. 
that that's a lot like what we mean. These sinful tendencies and desires. Yes, I think I think that's a, a fair way to talk about it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned even without sin nature. After salvation, we still have the flesh, but we're dead to sin, not slaves to sin. Does this mean that we no longer have a sin nature? Um, yeah, you definitely still have a sin nature because you're still tempted to do evil things. And then Galatians chapter um, 5, check this out. So some people say Romans 7 is only talking about people before they're saved. I won't get into that debate. Okay, I don't, I don't agree, but I won't get into that debate. Um, let's just move to a, another passage that will secure the answer without even that debate. So Paul says to Christians, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Christians, Christians, you have the desires of the flesh still in you. You're just not supposed to gratify them, but the, the desires are still there. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you, you Christian, from doing the things you want to do. This could only be about a Christian. I have God's Holy Spirit leading me in, in positive and good desires for good things. He's working in me to will and do according to his good pleasure. But I have my flesh, which is corrupt and is, is pushing me towards sinful things. And so I have a battle going on as a Christian. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he goes through the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Sometimes I honestly, I read this list just to remind myself of how much work I still have to do in my life as a Christian. Um, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You live that way. You're, you're, you're looking like someone who's not a Christian. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentle, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah, you should read this one too, <laughs> um, if you read the first one. Uh, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul thinks that you've crucified the flesh, but that you're still subjected to desires of the flesh. So what does he think crucified the flesh means? If the flesh is still with me in a way that it's battling against the spirit, it means that it's broken the power of sin so that I can say no and I can walk in the spirit. So he says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us walk with this. Let's walk in the spirit. If we live in the spirit, walk in the spirit. The battle is still there in the Christian's life. It's absolutely still there. Okay, I'm hoping my mute button is working. Um, all right, let's go to the next question. Number nine. Angel WVM says, I heard 1 Corinthians 4, 6 used to say not to go outside of scripture. Learning history to help interpret biblical context, for example. Your thoughts. Well, obviously, I'm one who goes in that sense. If if learning history to understand biblical context, if that's going outside of scripture, then I do it all the time. Like I just held this up. I was, and this is going to seem borderline to some people, right? I'm I'm literally reading a first century astrological text, like astrology, right? Creepy stuff that's off limits for Christians for sure to practice those things. I'm only learning it because it relates, literally relates to the meaning of the word authentes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because it's used in this text and when you have to look at all these examples of its use in order to understand it. Uh, Ptolemy also uses the same word, so I'm look, looking through him. So these things are, um, are, are definitely, I'm doing it all the time. I'm, I do exactly what you're talking about all the time. So you guys know what my answer is going to be. Here's the question. Can I, can I justify my answer? You can be the judge of that. 
First Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Not go beyond what is written. So you're, the, the pastor, whoever it is that has said this to you, um, they're, they're taking the phrase, don't go beyond what's written, and they're applying it to learning history outside the text of Scripture. The first question you want to ask yourself is this, does that seem like what Paul was talking about in the passage? Because obviously, not going beyond what is written, you could apply it very broadly. I could say this literally means anything you read, even if it's Christian, is not allowed. Commentaries are not allowed. Why? Because you're going beyond what's written. What about a Bible with footnotes or study notes? I could say that's not allowed. Why? Because that goes beyond what's written. Does it technically go beyond what's written? Yes, it does. If you take that phrase out of its context, not go beyond what's written, and you just apply it wildly and very strictly, it does mean that. What does it mean in the text? Let's back up and look at the context so that we won't go beyond what is written, <laughs> which is actually what interpreting that verse to mean that is doing. So this is how one should regard us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. If in fact, in fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. This is actually a really cool passage to study and learn each phrase, what he's talking about here. It's really interesting. Um, but I will yeah, move forward. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a sense in which he's just trying that this has gone on here. These first six verses, at least of that chapter, is to say, I'm going to do my best to serve the Lord. You should do your best to serve the Lord. None of us really knows how God's going to judge all our works in the end. Let's wait until that time comes. Let's not judge those things that we don't understand. Some would interpret this as, ah, it's a verse that says, don't judge, don't judge. Okay, that's a clumsy phrasing of it. It's specific kinds of judgment the Bible's against. Other kinds it's actually for. So this is talking about um, trying to judge the the motives and the, the goodness of somebody's works, knowing that God will bring all, all the things you don't know about that person to light and he'll, take, he'll test it one day. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, but that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Whatever this thing is, this not going beyond what is written, it keeps people from being puffed up in favor of one against another. Do, do you see the, there's a cause and effect? If you don't do X, then you won't do Y. Okay, X is don't go beyond what's written and why the thing you're not going to do because you're not going to do X is you're not going to be puffed up in favor of one against another. What is that? That's based on judging people and ranking people based upon how solid of a Christian you think they are, how impactful and great their ministry is. Like even so, look, I, I have a ministry that, that, okay, this is going to sound like, like arrogance to some people. I don't, I don't mean it that way at all. Actually, I mean, I'm kind of mean the opposite. I'm blown away that my online ministry is impacting so many people. I'm humbled because I'm like, who am I? And it's it's just, it's an amazing open door that the Lord's given me. 
but you might look at the numbers on my YouTube channel or the numbers of this ministry's reach through like whatever it is, podcasts and, and things like that, the website, whatever. Um, and you might think, therefore, wow, Mike has so many rewards. Oh, God's going to really reward Mike. But the Lord's going to then look at not only everything I've done, but all of my heart and all of my motives and what my faithfulness was behind the scene and how much integrity I really had that you could never know. You could never know because it wouldn't be that hard to fake it on a, on a camera. And he's going to examine all of that. And then he'll tell me the things I don't even know about what my ministry was really about. There's the impact, right? But then there's the 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 actual doing of the ministry, what kind of work you did and the things God knew about your heart while you were doing it, the integrity you really had, the things you got wrong. Um, God knows all that and he'll bring it to light. So don't be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's what not going beyond what is written is about. How is that about not learning history? That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem at all about not learning history. If anything, the phrase not go beyond what's written in Paul, I think he's he's applying it specifically to, I just wrote you a bunch of stuff, and now I'm asking you not to go beyond what I've written to you. Don't, he's not, he's not even talking about all of scripture here, although that's a great principle to apply to all of scripture to some extent. He's saying, I'm not going to, going beyond what's written here, let me say it another way. I'm not going to judge more than what I know and then be puffed up against other people. And I'm asking you, don't do that either. Going beyond what I described as here's the limit of my judgment, I'd ask you limit your judgments there as well. That's what he means. He means the exact context of not going beyond what's written. It is a good biblical principle as a Christian, don't go beyond what's written. As in, the Bible presents us this ironclad truth I have as Christians Things that where I where I learn outside the Bible or extra biblical sort of ideas, I can say those might be true, they might be false, but I won't commit myself fully to them. Okay, that's a phrase I can use. I'm not using it the way Paul did. I could say I'm not going beyond what's written there. But um, but yeah. Bottom line, Paul never intended when he said don't go beyond what's written to be telling the Corinthians they couldn't study history, which Paul studied, by the way, or they couldn't read a a information that was written by a pagan poet, which Paul did, by the way, because he quotes a pagan poet in the book of Acts. He didn't mean that. So if you take the phrase, don't go beyond what's written and tell people you can't read history about the Bible and those times, they're going beyond what's written. While using the phrase, don't go beyond what's written, which is hugely ironic. Um, but that, that's, that's my opinion on that. Be gracious to them about it, but do not let them, their words have power in your life. All right, number 10, Esteban Zeferino. Um, you got a great last name. I probably said it wrong. Um, <clears throat> hey, Pastor Mike, when is the earliest in church history that we see Christians worshiping on Sunday instead of the Sabbath? Did it begin with the Catholic Church or was it before? God bless. Good question. Oh, just a second. It's gonna, it is going to take me a second. I'm going to find a scripture for you here. Um, so <clears throat> uh, as far as the, the, um, the calendar is concerned, the Sabbath is the, is the last day of the week, right? That's Saturday, Sabado. Uh, <laughs> I live in Southern California, <laughs> Sabado. Um, and then you have Sunday, which is the first day of the week. Many people just it sort of start thinking of Monday as the first day of the week because it's like the first day of your work week, but Sunday is the first day of the week. 
In scripture, it uses the same terminology. First day of the week is referring to Sunday. And so when we get to, um, let's start with Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they prepared. First day of the week, they come to the tomb, right? In John 20, it's the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. Jesus rose on the first day. That's the idea we get consistently in scripture, that Jesus rose on the first day. That day became pretty important to Christians. It was the day of the resurrection of Jesus. And it seems right away, like very early on, people started gathering on the first day of the week. Here we go in uh, Acts 20, verse 7, where it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is where he has that really long sermon. He teaches like like a like a longer than one of my videos sermon, <laughs> um, and he goes on till midnight, till late in the night. But this tells you not just that they happened to be gathered on the first day of the week, but it was when they gathered. Like it's on the first day of the week. Why is he mentioned the day? Because this is the routine. When we gather together for what? To break bread, which is not just a coincidental thing. Acts 2 says that they were they gathered regularly to, bake, to break bread, that this was like a, a formal meal and not just an informal thing. This was a Christian gathering, probably communion as well. Paul talks with them. So there they are, gathered on the first day of the week. That That's on Sunday, right? That's, that's Sunday. That's interesting. Well, in 1 Corinthians 16 too, we get another occurrence of first day of the week. Paul tells them, now concerning, I'll start in verse 1, the collection for the saints. This is, this is uh, the, they're collecting money to give away to poor Christians in other cities. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first day, why the first day of the week? Because that seems like that was the regular gathering day. That, that was, that's not... Crystal clear, but it seems implied. It seems implied. Um, then we have like Revelation that talks about the Lord's Day, uh, where he's 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 praying and stuff, and it's on the Lord's Day. This is where the, the first day of the week is starting to be just be called the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath, but probably the day that the, of the resurrection. My answer then is um, is well, it's not complete. Let me just add another element. The um, the early Jews gathered on Sabbath at the temple, but the church consisted of not just Jews, but of Gentiles as well. They gathered for their own Christian service. They're, they're, we're all followers of Jesus, whether we're Jewish or not, on the first day of the week regularly. There's times where they gathered every day, especially in the very, very beginning of the book of Acts. But when it became routine, it seems like that routine immediately, first century life of the apostles, that they were gathering on the first day of the week, not the last day, the Sabbath. The Jews continued to gather on the Sabbath. It's not as though they didn't go to the temple on the Sabbath. In the book of Acts, we still see them continuing to participate in those activities. So I'm not saying they quit one and did the other. If you were Jewish, you probably went to the temple, and then the next day you gathered together with your Christian brothers and sisters. That is, I think, what we what we see there. Um, uh, so yeah, there's probably more I could layer on to this, but I'm just giving you the, the off-the-top-of-my-head answer. So, All right, let's look at number 11. Stephen Parker says, drag queen culture. Oh, can you believe, Stephen, that you've even had to write a question with that phrase in it ever in your life? 
Drag queen culture is championed by the LGBTQ movement and therefore feels immoral by association, but I find it hard to put a finger on why drag by itself is biblically wrong. Any thoughts? Um, <clears throat> well, I'll give you a couple thoughts. The At its very core, there's the core of the, of the drag stuff, and then there's kind of the baggage that usually comes with it. Okay, so let's talk about the core first. The core, it seems to me, is men pretending to be women. That's the core. And you could say, well, some of it might be women pretending to be men. Yeah, but, the, but really what we're dealing with mostly is men pretending to be women when it comes to drag stuff, right? Um, men pretending to be women. That is inherently wrong. Like at its core, it's inherently wrong. It's, it's, and here's a few reasons why. Um, the, the God made them male and female in Scripture throughout the Old Testament. We're told that, um, that male and female roles are actually different. Uh, in the law, God actually forbids men from wearing women's clothes and, and vice versa. All right? A man shall not wear anything pertaining to a woman. A woman shall not wear anything pertaining to a man. This doesn't mean women can't wear pants. There are women's pants, okay? Right? There are women's pants. And there might be even some clothes that are gender neutral. But what you don't do is you don't put on a dress to imitate a woman. Now, Mike, we're not under the law. We're not under the Old Testament law. Oh, I don't think we are. But I think that it is... Yeah, that that law to Israel was based on a principle that God made them male and female and that these are meant to be different things. In the New Testament, we also have statements against effeminate men, men acting like women. We have statements against uh, against the, the changing of gender roles in Ephesians, in Colossians. Um, we, have, we have that men, this is your role in marriage even. Women, this is your role in marriage. We have Romans that talks about how how it's it's a depraved thing, it's a depravity thing for men to to treat other men as women, sexually speaking. Okay, so for homosexuality, that 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 is actually an immoral thing, and drag queen is based upon the same principle that it's okay to switch genders. Basically, it's okay to mess up God's gender plans. That's a major, like at its fundamental base, it's 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 immoral being a drag queen. It, it would be immoral, and it's fundamental base. That is to say. Not ooh, ick, I'm so disturbed, and all oh, my 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 uh, my Christian principles are bothered, and I'm I'm too I'm so annoying. Society can't handle me. Like that's not the point. The point is a person pretending, a man dressed up in makeup and dress and all that, pretending to be a woman, is living a lie, is presenting a lie, and is attacking something foundational to his own nature as a man in a way that hurts him and society, and rebels against God's design for men and women. Okay, so obviously that's a huge issue, but that's just the the, the central stuff. Um, <clears throat> then you've got the peripheral or the baggage that usually, it seems, comes with drag queens, which is all manner of sexual perversion and over-sexualization of people and children, towards children even. It's the craziest stuff. And that's obviously just an outgrowth of the fact that drag queen by its nature is a rebellion against God's design for humans and for sex. And so it, of course, comes with this further rebellion. <clears throat> There's a reason why LGBT and Q like, <clears throat> go together. They don't go together in a sense, right? Like conceptually, lesbians and, and transgender don't go together because by nature, a lesbian's like, I only want to be with a woman. And a transgender by nature is saying, I'm a man who can just be a woman because I say so. And the lesbian's like, but I want to be with like a woman woman. You know, like they, they're inherently, they don't work. And so there's even infighting about that where like a transgender uh, person is saying, hey, I say I'm a woman. 
you're a lesbian. You should date me because I'm telling you I'm a woman. And the lesbian is like, no, I mean like, you know, like a real woman. <laughs> so this is, this is where it, it conflicts internally. But what is the glue that holds them together is that all the groups, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, they all reject God's design for humankind and reject the categories God's put us in and the roles that God's called us to. They all agree on that, even though they internally conflict on some other things. Those are my thoughts on that. <clears throat> all right, question number 12. Mickey Foley says in Genesis 9-3, why did God allow us to start eating meat after the flood? I don't know. Um, yeah. Boy, this is something that gets my brain going. So in, in, in the beginning, before the flood, it says, uh, he says in Genesis, I give you like, you could eat of every tree of every, every plant that bears fruit. You can eat of it freely. He doesn't say you can't eat the animals, but he doesn't mention the animals either. Now, is that, is that God? You know, after the flood, uh, God tells him, you know, you can eat of, of all the, of all the animals. You can eat the meat now. Um, is that saying that Adam and Eve would have been vegetarians and that everybody would have been vegetarian by God's design up until the point at which he opens the doors to eating meat? I'm not convinced that that's the case. So there's two different views, at least, and I don't know which one's right, on Genesis on this passage, on this idea. Either A, God is telling you be vegetarian. So when he affirms that you can eat of the trees and eat of the fruit, <clears throat> he's by implication saying you can't eat animals. That's one view. I'm not convinced of that. The other view is, <clears throat> at least that comes to my mind, okay, I'm not saying I've studied all, all the different views on this stuff. My other option that I have in my head here is that God is saying, um, I planted a garden. It's beautiful. It's ideal. It's perfect. He didn't plant animals. He just planted a garden. And so he's telling them, you can eat of anything you want in the garden. Later, he will forbid them from eating in the garden. And when you also realize that there's one tree they can't eat from. So he's like, you can eat of all the trees that you get, but not that one. Then you realize why he's highlighting plants here and he's not talking about animals. So I don't know if animals were supposed to be off limits or not. I just don't know that that's the case. So that's why this question gets me going in my mind here is I'm like, why did God allow us to start eating meat after the flood? I, wait, did they? Did he? Um, did he? I don't know that that I would conclude that. I'm, I'm I'm unresolved on that issue that that's actually what happened. Um, the first animal death in the Bible is the animal that died in order to make uh, skins for Adam and Eve to wear for clothing. When you get to Noah, humans are eating animals and there are clean and unclean animals that they're aware of. They're already eating them. So God gives them the ability to eat, eat animals, but were they, does that mean they didn't have that ability before? Or is it more like God floods the earth and just like he introduced Adam and Eve to the garden, this perfect place where they could eat, eat of the fruit. Now he introduces Noah and his family to this not perfect place. It's been flooded, right? This is the post fall situation. And he's like, yeah, you, you know, you can eat this and that, but don't, don't eat the blood, right? That kind of thing. Um, it may not be in initiating something new, is what I'm saying at that point. New compared to Adam and Eve, perhaps, but not because the animal thing is new, but because the garden is gone. Anyway, I don't know more than that. Jonathan says, I take mild cannabis edibles for my ADHD. 
uh, on them, I have wonderful quiet times in prayer and Bible study. Would it be rightly dividing scripture to say this is how, this is how I personally am being sober-minded? Uh, Jonathan, um, I don't understand all, all these drugs that well. Um, but I have to say that from at least my perspective, and I, I'd encourage you actually do some research on this and get some other opinions about it too. Okay. But here's my honest, unfiltered perspective is that what you share here, um, sounds potentially problematic because of what I know about false religions. It is not uncommon at all for other religions to false religions, to use drugs, various drugs of various strengths as a way of supplementing genuine spiritual experiences. Smoking peyote and looking into the fire as a way of feeling like you're connecting with the great spirit. Okay. Like I got a buddy who did this when I was, we were like 18, 17 <clears throat> and uh, he saw a vision and stuff like that. And, and it was, it was a drug induced vision. He felt like he had a real spiritual experience. I've known people, I know, I knew a guy who apostatized, left the faith, and then he would go into these sensory deprivation tanks and he would use mushrooms or mushroom derived drugs. And he thought he was having real genuine spiritual experiences. And he said it was great. He said it was awesome. But in reality, it was like a serious problem. Um, it was not genuine. It was like a way of misleading him. Shaman in other, other religions and village shaman have been using drugs for a long time to try to invoke experiences in people. So when you're like, hey, when I use a little bit of drugs, I have my quiet times. Maybe that's how I get spiritual and sober-minded. And I get that you're not saying, here's, here's where I, I want to be cautious. You are not saying here, I have these visions, right? So maybe the, maybe the amount of cannabis, you say I take mild cannabis edibles. Here's the limit of my knowledge. I don't know what mild cannabis edibles mean for your body and your chemistry and your mind and how it affects you. Maybe it truly just helps you stay focused and calm. And that's the only effect it has. And it doesn't lend itself towards manufactured spiritual experiences. Okay, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's there's nothing wrong there. I, I think that um, alcohol can be taken in moderation and Theoretically, you could take something like <clears throat> uh, cannabis in moderation. I say theoretically because I highly doubt that this ever happens or that it that it happens very often. Um, even for people who th they think that they're fine. I think I'm fine. Look, I've met a lot of stoners. I've got a lot of use of various substances in my family growing up. Okay, I've seen all sorts of things. And they all, none of them thought they had a problem. <laughs> so I'm so hesitant to open the door to this sort of thing. But I also recognize that that, but in principle, a small enough dose of, of of lots of different types of things could just be positive without sort of leading to these negative consequences, negative um, uh, mental effects. But I don't know enough about the chemistry to answer that question, to be honest. So I'm concerned hearing your question. I don't exactly know how to apply it into your life. I'll present the principles there. Um, and say, uh, uh, it, it, it gives me reason for concern. Uh, that's about as good as it gets, man. Look, I'm just one guy. I do believe that one thing that we can, we should agree on here, whether you agree with my opinion about these things or not, Christians are called to be sober-minded. A sober mind means you would pass a sobriety test. A sober mind means that your thoughts are your own and that your inhibitions are all intact. Uh, so, 
those types of things, yeah, we, we absolutely have to have. Um, I'm concerned uh, for other reasons about these issues that I, I don't fully know the answers. I, I know I've seen people get, I've seen people move towards schizophrenia because of, because of cannabis, but that doesn't mean that everybody will who has it or something like that. So it's just deeply concerning. It, it, it's, uh, I don't want to take good medical uses away. I wonder if there's a, a non-THC version of it that you could take. I had a friend who worked at a clinic they, they, where they gave out uh, cannabis products for medical purposes, right? And <clears throat> she said that there's a, there's a non-THC version, but none of the clients wanted that. They all wanted the one with THC. And it would have the same medical benefit for, in this particular case, whatever it was, but they all wanted the THC one. And this tells me that even if I was to affirm medicinal use, I have to be aware that there's all kinds of people are like, yeah, yeah, it's medicinal. <laughs> you know, and then they just do what they want. And now they feel like they have an excuse. And so I'm even cautious in how much I say that out loud, because while I believe it's a true category, I believe it's an abused category. All right. Um, God give us wisdom. Corey Seitz says, what are your thoughts on John 15, 2? And the Greek word for takes away. I've heard that it would be more accurately translated as raise up. This word seems to change the verse's meaning. Yeah, I, I get you. So let's look at that together, y'all. John 15, 2. This is about the uh, the vine and abiding. Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now that's a deeply powerful thing to say because they would have thought of Israel as the true vine. But yeah, if you're not even in Israel, if you're not in Christ, not ultimately, not eternally, right? You're not going to be eternally part of that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I'm going to read more just so we can get this. Um, we, we can get more context. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and he is uh, in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown to the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So the, the idea is like, yeah, if you abide in Jesus, you'll bear fruit. You bear fruit, you're proving you're really his disciple, if you don't abide in Christ, if you don't remain in Christ, if you don't identify with Christ, you're not you're not going to be you're not going to have eternal life. Ultimately, um, there's like are there two categories or three? Okay, so you've got um, <clears throat> people who don't abide in Jesus and they're thrown away like a branch and wither, and they're gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. Okay, well that, this seems to be talking about judgment here. Okay, you you don't have eternal life, you wither, you end up in judgment. The 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 symbol of the fire there. What about verse two, though? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Is that the same as the branch that doesn't abide in him? Because there are branches in him that are not bearing fruit. Is that the same as a branch that's not abiding? Maybe, because Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. So maybe you're not bearing fruit. is showing that you're not abiding in Christ, in which case this is ultimately the person who's not saved in the end. Well, this scares people. They're like, what if that's me? Well, like, well, well it might actually be talking about Israel more than individuals about how they didn't they didn't hold fast to that messianic hope and trust in Christ and so they ended up not not abiding in him um now some say this phrase takes away could be translated differently as uh like pruning I wonder if we get a translation that actually does this 
or he lifts up, not pruning, but lifting up. Here it's, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That's NIV. Here in the New King James, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. ESV, every branch, you know, he takes away. Uh, they do have footnotes. Um, let's see, New King James, I think, has a footnote here. Yeah, where it says, you can't see the footnote, but I can't. It says lifts up. Okay, the footnote there, a little number one next to he takes away. So it actually in the footnote says, or it could mean he lifts up. Like what that means is this is a genuine option for the meaning of the term. Um, I can tell you the term in just a second here. Sorry, let me, this is going to be too small for you guys to see. But let me look at the passage. Uh, John, John 15, 2. Um, Ere, it comes from Aero, or Iro, excuse me, Iro. And it can mean to raise up to a higher place or a higher position, to lift up, to take up, to pick up. Okay, that could be a positive thing. It could be talking about stones. We're lifting up stones. We're raising them up like you're doing a building thing. Um, but it can also mean to carry away or to remove. So which is it? Is it, is it being lifted up like a like a, a vineyard vine dresser goes around and says, ooh, this branch isn't doing so good. Maybe it's covered under the others. It's not getting sunlight. Or maybe it's dipped down into the dirt so it's not getting the proper photosynthesis going on. So I lift it up, put a stick under it. I lift it up so it might bear more fruit. In which case, you know, we would, we would treat it differently. John 15, 2 would be every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He lifts it up. He treats it in some positive way so that it might bear fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The problem here is it doesn't tell us why he lifts it up, right? The rest of the whole section only gives you two categories. People who are like bearing fruit and they're they're in Christ and they're abiding in him. And the people who are not abiding in him, they're not remaining in him and they end up, end up in judgment. Most translators, to my knowledge, go with takes away, the scarier translation. Um... I wonder how many don't. That at least is some evidence of like, hey, at least a lot of people looking at this think it, it has that scarier connotation. Then you can have an, another study if that's the case, if takes away, I lean towards takes away. I remember having studied this and looking at the options and uh, <clears throat> I, I don't have a teaching through John here online, but I've taught through it uh, elsewhere. And I I thought I couldn't, I couldn't in good conscience say it means lifts up here. I felt like maybe it meant more takes away. I could be wrong there. That, that was my in, my understanding at the time. Um, if that's the case, I want to understand that because that's a big deal. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, um, he later goes on to say, hey, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. So it, it's not like we're saying you have to have a certain amount of good works in order to be still be saved. Uh, no, you abide in Jesus, that results in the fruit. You don't have any fruit. It's merely showing that you're not really abiding in Christ. That's all it would be saying. This is enough to say that there are such things as um, people who claim to be Christians that aren't really Christians. And the only outward sign of this is the, their lives, the lifestyle they live. And that demonstrates that they're not really abiding in Christ. Because if they were, they would bear fruit. All right, we'll go to question number 15. Rebecca H. says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Is the devil talking to God in today's generation, like in the book of Job? If angels are warring with demons, we can assume there is communication? Question mark. Thanks so much. Um, it's not just Job. There's other places too. So like in the, in, the, in the book of Daniel, we have this statement where Daniel's like praying for God to reveal something to him. And finally, the angel shows up to reveal this stuff to God, to, to, from God 
to, re- uh, to reveal the stuff that God has said to Daniel and explain it because he had a vision, dream stuff he didn't understand. He was like, what does it mean? And he says, the, the, in fact, there's a video game I, I, I haven't actually played, but I know that I know of it. Um, uh, based on this, on this, on this phrase, I think. Um, but he says like, Hey, the Prince of Persia withstood me here. I'll, I'll share it with you guys. Um, it's Daniel 10. Um, so, okay. He, I'll back up a little more. Okay. So suddenly a hand touched me, Daniel speaking, <clears throat> which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, Oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I've now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart to humble, uh, set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words, because of the power of your words. No, right. Because God listened to you. That's what it is. Um, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I've been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. Um, For the vision refers to like future stuff. So the prince of Persia here, I understand to be a spiritual being. Michael, like Michael the angel, the archangel we read about in scripture, he comes and he helps him. And what is he called? A chief prince helping confirm that the phrase prince here refers to the spiritual realm. There are, obviously, there are ranks of different angelic or spiritual beings that are out there. And the prince of Persia, it could be Satan or one of his agents that's sort of like over Persia. Maybe the power behind the throne, maybe the one pulling the strings behind the throne, something like that. I think there is a spiritual realm. Um, He'd been left there alone with the kings of Persia. So he was overpowered. He was unable to accomplish what he wanted to do. There was something of a battle going on. What does that look like? I don't know. Um, you don't know. People will pretend they know. <laughs> or they'll imagine something they think would be cool, and then they'll just describe the angelic world as that. I don't want to do that. Um, but I will say this. Like, yeah, look, here's th- th- this would require there to be communication going on. This would require there to be some sort of altercation going on to some extent. And so the answer to your question seems to be yes. Paul talks in Ephesians about... Um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right, but against the rulers uh, of the darkness of this age, or against principalities and powers. The, the, these are terms that are hard to understand, principalities and powers. But he's not talking about humans. He said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He's talking about the spiritual realm that's interacting um, with our realm, but also with itself. And so I think that the answer to your question seems to be yes, in my opinion. Um is the devil talking to God in today's generation, like in the book of Job? Uh, that much, I like, is that like a normal thing to say? I, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question specifically, but I would agree with this. You say, if angels are warring with demons, can we assume there's communication? I think that, yes, we can. Um, there's some kind of communication that goes on there. Some might think Satan couldn't possibly talk to God because God wouldn't tolerate his presence. Um, well, God will judge him at, at some point, but Job seems to prove that that's not this like sort of ironclad rule of, of, of the universe that if something sinful comes to God's presence, he has to instantaneously judge. Like as if God doesn't have the freedom to choose when he'll judge. So yeah. Let's look at question 16. On the struggle bus, that's the name of the YouTube uh, YouTube channel, how can I know I have the right faith? 
I've been watching many apologetics videos since I first found your videos over four years ago, and many Catholics, Reformed, and Evangelicals have convincing arguments. Um, <clears throat> well, the Catholics are wrong, <laughs> and the Reformed are wrong, and the Evangelicals are right. Like, it's easy. This is an easy question. I don't even know why you're struggling at all. I'm going to drink coffee now for the rest of the video. Okay. Um, one thing, one thing to do is this, um, get your head around the person of Jesus, which Catholics reformed and evangelicals, which we all agree on. Okay. Well, there's a good starting point, isn't it? The person of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, those, those, those like ironclad, like central facts of Christianity. We agree on that. The nature of who God is, we agree on that. So what are we dis what are we agreeing on? Could you start with that? Could you say, hey, I want to have the right faith. Well, I'm going to believe in Jesus' death and his resurrection. I'm going to believe in God and in the omnipotent God. I'm going to believe in th that I'm saved when I put my faith and trust in Christ. If you start there, then you realize that you don't, you know, you don't, have, for the most part, you don't have to worry about a lot of those other debates right away. Uh, when it comes to other stuff, <clears throat> um, uh, you could be reformed and, and, and evangelical at the same time. Reformed, I take to just mean you're a Calvinist. Okay. So fine. You can, you can, you can parse that out and work that out on your own. I pray that the Lord gives you patience and wisdom and all this sort of thing. I think Catholicism is an easier question to answer for me, uh, even than the issues of like reformed versus, cause I'm not reformed. Okay. I'm not a Calvinist. Um, but I get along with them great and, and can get along with them great more easily than say with somebody who has, uh, who we disagree with on Catholicism. I'm not saying I can't get along with the Catholic, like be friends and stuff like that. What I'm saying is I can't exactly hold their hands in all the same contexts in church and in things like that, because there are some really significant things there. The amount of extra added on, like if you took the basis, like imagine if you had, um, like, a, um, gosh, what am I? I need an analogy here. I'm reaching for one. Imagine you had a ball of Legos. <laughs> and this ball of Legos is like your starting point. Like it's the base. Or I'll take a base of Legos. The, the flat base of Legos. The, the base of the Legos is like Jesus, his death and resurrection, being saved by grace, by believing in him. Um, evangelicals tend to add some more stuff on there. Right, we too. Now we're not saying that stuff's not biblical, but it's definitely added on to that core. Okay, it's definitely more than just that core. Um, Catholicism adds a whole lot more stuff onto there, and that whole lot more stuff is to say, if you embrace um, the Lego structure of, say, evangelical, like classic old school evangelicalism, not not um, like the, the more progressive style that's leaking into some churches, then you would embrace a, a thing that has that foundation and, and a little bit more. If you embrace reformed, I think you're embracing even a little bit more commitments, a little bit more theological commitments than that, because you're now you're talking about like tulip and all those doctrinal commitments because evangelical could include reformed, could not. Uh, but now if you're going to add reformed, you added more doctrinal commitments. Then if you were to embrace say, say Catholicism, you've got to take off all that reform stuff, some of this evangelical stuff, but then you add like a large amount of extra stuff. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Um, do I accept this thing over here that accepts the foundation and some more, the foundation and some more and some more, or 
the foundation and a lot more. Just recognize that this is these are not the same thing at all. Um, Catholicism adds a lot, a lot more. That might seem clumsy, but I just want you to give you some perspective um, on these issues. I have some videos on Catholicism. If you're if you're interested in these topics, um, I would recommend you guys check out uh, Gavin Ortland's channel. <clears throat> I think it's called Truth Unites. We don't agree on everything, but when it comes to the intersection of Protestantism in general, just general sort of basic Protestantism, historical, compared to Catholicism, like he's the best source I've seen online for dealing with this stuff, Gavin Ortland. So I'd recommend you guys check out his channel, Truth Unites, and for you to check that stuff out as well on the struggle bus, because I think you will find it very helpful. Um, what he does that a lot of other people don't do is he gets kind of deep into the history of things so that he can sort of bring clarity. And he's a good teacher too. And those two those two combine well into giving people a lot of clarity. Um, I avoided, I'll say this real quickly, I avoided talking about the doctrine of justification, but it is absolutely relevant. It really does matter. And Catholicism's doctrine of justification, depending on how you understand it, as I understand it, is so problematic to me that it, I, see it, I see it chipping away at the actual base, the actual foundations being chipped away. Um, and so that's a significant issue. I don't want to make that any smaller than I think it is. Not everybody agrees with me on that. God will be the judge. Kenny One says, <clears throat> Kenny One Life says, uh, hey, Pastor Mike. Actually, you wrote Paster Mike, which I like even better. Hey, Paster Mike. Uh, thank you for everything you've done. Because of you, I've been thinking more biblically. What are your thoughts on the Shroud of Turin? Oh, well, first off, Kenny, I'm super glad to hear that. Um, makes my day. Like, makes my day. Because I think you know, if you've been listening to a lot of my content, you know, I don't think it means you just agree with me on everything. Rather, you, you, you go... I open the Bible and I understand it better. I get asked questions or I ask myself questions and I start thinking of scriptures in context that are giving me answers to my questions. And that is priceless. So what are my thoughts on the Shroud of Turin? Uh, my jury is out. My jury is out. The Shroud of Turin is uh, <laughs> potentially really cool and potentially really not cool and could it be genuine? Maybe. There's definitely some people out there who used to think it was fake, and now they're saying more research has confirmed it, and we really think it's accurate. Um, they did a test on a piece of the Shroud of Turin, and that that proved that it came later, that it was definitely later, and it didn't come from the time of Christ, whether it was from Christ or not. It didn't even come from the time of Christ. It came much later. But then other people said, no, 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 the Shroud had been damaged in the past, and the section you tested had been reconstructed. As I recall, this is the details. And so what we need to do is do it, do another test from another section. And then they haven't been able to do that yet because people aren't allowing them to. There's others who say like, we can't reproduce the shroud by any human means available to us. Um, and maybe that's true. Or maybe you just haven't thought of the means yet. Um, others say, well, no, the, the shroud, there's all these different pieces of evidence that would support it. I, I don't, I guess here's the thing. I don't need the shroud of Turin to be evidence for anything to me. Like, I feel like there's a great, strong evidence for the resurrection of Christ, for the for the existence of God, and for the inspiration of Scripture, such that I don't, like, the Shroud of Turin just becomes like, oh, here's another piece in the puzzle I could throw out there. But because I have these unanswered questions, I won't use it. I don't want to use an apologetic argument that is on un uncertain or shaky ground, because the thing I'm trying to get people to believe is not uncertain or shaky. So I don't want to use an argument that could perhaps backfire later on when more studies are done um, and it turns out to be shaky uh, that, that there's my thoughts on it so at least for now it's on the back burner 
Now, someone watching, maybe you know more than I do about this. And you're like, oh, Mike, you're, you're like 10 years behind you're, or six months behind. And you don't know this is super solid because of A, B, C, D. Like, I don't know that yet. That's why I don't use it yet. And if that becomes the case, I'll, I'll use it fine. Um, as long as people don't treat it like a relic that they're going to worship and touch and rub their faces on and try to like turn into a relic thing, you know, Nehushtan, right? That's what, that's what Moses said when the bronze serpent was turned into like a relic type thing that they were worshiping and they were treating that way. He was like, it's a thing of brass, Nehushtan, it's a thing of brass. Like just reminded them like, it's a cloth. If it is, even if it's real, it's just a cloth. Like it's evidence of something. It's amazing, but it, it's not superpowers. 18, anonymous question says, my family member loves, capital L-O-V-E-S, loves Joel Osteen. What are some thoughtful questions I could ask that would naturally lead them to a more biblical, Christ-centered understanding of the gospel? Well, let me say this. Your goal isn't, it shouldn't be to keep them from listening to Joel Osteen, but perhaps your goal should be to introduce them to good, solid biblical teachers. So how about you go do some homework and find because obviously Joel Osteen is a polished speaker. Like I'm not, it's not my thing. Joel Osteen is a polished speaker. It is, it is um, what he says and the way he says it and the, and the expressions he, he, he gives, it's all very formatted and he's polished, right? So how about you find polished godly speakers who really teach the word of God and expose your friend, your neighbor, your your loved one to that, your family member, you said. That's what I think you should do. Um, because if you can do that, the lights will go on. <laughs> Over time, the lights will go on and have a long-term plan for this. If you see an open door, like the reason why I'm putting it this way is because you say they love Joel Osteen, meaning their commitment to Joel Osteen is very high. And you're thinking, how do I lower that commitment? I think rather... Um, get them into a stronger biblical environment where they're learning the word and it's in a way that maybe connects with their learning style so that they would just naturally, they'll see it for themselves um, and look for those opportunities to, to talk about it where, where hopefully the way that you talk to them, it's clear to them, they can feel it the way you talk. You're not there to attack Joel Osteen. You're there to exalt the word of God. And that's the nature of like my video where I did a review of Joel Osteen, the one that he would not al allow on the internet. <laughs> and then went through all that rigmarole. I'll link that below for anybody who's interested in watching me review a Joel Osteen sermon. I had to read the sermon myself because of uh, him bringing it down and claiming copyright infringement over and over again. Um, and so uh, I have to end up reading it. But, but the review is there and I read word for word what he said. Um, yeah, like you could share that video where I do a review of Joel Osteen. But I, I don't know if the, 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 the few words you use to describe your family member... I don't know if that's the best tactic for them. It might be finding someone who's a really good speaker, who's a really good Bible teacher, who's a really solid believer, who really calls people to true discipleship, not Joel Osteen's version that is a very watered down discipleship where they're not really called to like give up what they have and follow Jesus Christ, like like full disciple, but they're more like called to a, a kind of a discipleship that's about achieving your goals and, and accomplishing your dreams. Yeah and pray for him. I'm sure there's other advice that you could have that, that maybe I should be giving you. This is just what comes to my mind. Number 19, Erica Hughes says, can you explain Ephesians 3.10 in the ESV? Who are the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? And how is the manifold wisdom of God made known to them through the church? Okay, if, uh, I can sort of explain it. Ephesians 3.10. 
Um, okay, this passage, I'm backing up a little bit. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, there we go. That's Paul talking. He's less than least of all the saints. Is he being falsely humble? No, no, he, he's the saint who killed other saints and persecuted the church of Christ. So he sees himself as like, oh, I don't deserve this. It's such grace to me. God gave had to give me more grace right? uh, for me to do this. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we may have boldness, uh, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Um, okay, so let me say this. The part that I, I, I don't know in with clarity how to explain is who the principalities and powers in heavenly places are. That were principalities, it's talking about authority. Okay, so there are rulers, there are in heavenly places, we're talking about spiritual, in a spiritual realm, so to speak, that have authority. There are principalities, like a principal of a school has authority, they're rulers. And, um, oh, sorry, let me go to the ESV here. That's what you asked about. Um, yeah, in fact, it translates it rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So these are obviously spiritual beings. Um, are they good ones or bad ones? Well, let me take you to um, chapter 6, 12, which I referenced earlier today. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It at least includes bad ones because he used some, uses some of the same terminology to talk about things we wrestle against. Now, he may be, he may be saying there's lots of spiritual authorities and powers some of them are good, some are bad. We're wrestling against the bad ones. So maybe there's good ones and bad ones, but at least some of them are bad. Um, so God is using the church to demonstrate to these rulers and authorities his glorious plan, which is the nature of Jesus and how, um, how the gospel was going to work out. The mystery that Ephesians 3 is talking about here is the, the idea that like, while there's prophecy about the coming of Christ, it's sufficiently in, uh, there's enough gaps in it. Like there's, this is prophesied, that's prophesied. So we know this and this will happen, but there's enough gaps in it that you don't know all the details. And you certainly don't understand the full picture until later. It's kind of like looking at the connect the dots thing. And it's, you know, you have to connect the dots, you know, it will reveal a picture, but until they're connected, you don't quite know what the picture is. Now you're an adult, maybe you know what the picture is, but as a little kid, you know, your, your brain doesn't work that good. You're like, I don't know what the picture is saying. Jesus is the picture. All the dots of prophecy, Jesus is the picture that these things connect and show. Whoa, it's Jesus on a cross. Jesus coming out of an empty tomb. It's Jesus dying for your sin. It's Jesus taking on human form, living the perfect life so that you, by just believing in him, doing nothing, just trusting in him, that you could be forgiven and saved, restored to God, know him for eternity, have fellowship with God and the joys of all eternity, that God is fixing the world through Jesus Christ. This is like the, this great mystery. And God wants to show not just humans his love. He wants to show the angelic beings 
his love as well, the spiritual realm too. God is proving his goodness and his love and his power, even to Satan, even to the forces of darkness through Jesus Christ. They're going to see, maybe despised, but they're going to see and know that Jesus is Lord, right? And that's what I think this is talking about. It's going to be through the church, God redeems this fallen, lost people, brings them back to himself through his love, that they see God's grace and his love and his power, um, his goodness. So we're demonstrating this to, to, to not only the world, but we're demonstrating it to, to the spiritual realm as well. I think that that's, that's the meaning of Ephesians 3.10 there. Um, yeah, that's the manifold wisdom of God. All right, let's go to number 20. The Hemmings, last question, <clears throat> says, doesn't 1 John 2.2 blow the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement straight out of the water? Congratulations on episode 100. So let's go to 1 John 2.2 while we're on our way there. Just a reminder, um, BibleThinker.org, tons of free content for you guys. There's no ads or nothing like that on the site. <laughs> no, no, not selling stuff. It's just free stuff for you. Searchable database. You could do the clip search feature. Try that out. See if you like it. And you could also find us on podcast. You can find this on um, just about any podcast you want. You guys can find me on Twitter uh, or even Instagram. We post some stuff there. I don't interact on Instagram much at all, but you can find the content there as well and on Facebook and um, yeah, other things too. So yeah, check it out if you guys want more of that. So 1 John 2.2, not John 2.2, 1 John 2.2. Does it blow? Here's the question from the Hemings. Doesn't 1 John 2.2 blow the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement straight out of the water? Um, now, what is the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement? It's the idea that Jesus' death was only for a certain group of people. It wasn't for all humans. It was only for the elect. The elect are, are not whoever will, will end up having faith in Jesus. Rather, the elect are defined as the people God has chosen to have faith. Jesus, his death pay for, who he's also chosen to give them, basically uh, cause them to have faith by regeneration. So you have these this Calvinist doctrines, you know, total depravity. You, you've got um, uh, limited atonement as, as one of them. That's the L in the tulip, the T-U-L-I-P. So limited atonement is the least popular Calvinist doctrine. And that, that's a little bit of a crass way to put it. I should say it is the least agreed upon Calvinist doctrine, as in... Of those who call themselves Calvinists, the one piece of tulip that they will most often not hold to is the L, limited atonement. And I do think that this passage blows it out of the water, to be completely honest, but, but there's specific reasons for that. So 1 John 2, 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Okay, that they're going to agree on, right? And not for ours only, but also Jesus is the propitiation, the, the sacrifice to bring, to bring oneness for the sins of the whole world. Now, a Calvinist has to find a way of interpreting the phrase the whole world to refer to a group of people that is only the elect, only the people who will, will actually get saved. This whole world phrase cannot include anyone who's not a Christian. And I actually deal with this in detail in videos online. I'll, I'll post one or two videos down below where I talk about 1 John 2, 2 in great detail, and I talk about the, the issues related to that. Um, but let's, let's talk about today. The, the phrase, um, world, what does John mean when he says the world? He's like us and the world. Well, some say, well, the world just means like Christians who aren't 
part of the community that he's writing to. But this would be the there'd be a very rare moment here in First John where the phrase whole world, right, entire world is being used to talk about exclusively Christians or people who will be Christians at some point, the elect. It's weird to think that the phrase whole world means the elect, effectively. Um, that's a strange interpretation. But also, First John doesn't usually use the word world that way. So in First John, he says, um, do not love the world or the things in the world. Okay, but he's not talking about people though, right? Because we're supposed to love people. That's true. But he is using the word world here in a collective sense of things that are not part of the Christian faith. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, right? It Of the world, the world's passing away. Okay, so again, it, it, he's using the term world in a negative sense. It's not being like used to refer to the elect or something in connection with the elect. The world's passing away. But then in 1 John 3.1, we get the world talking about individuals. Okay, so the world here, he's talking about like, a category of like sort of the fallen the fallen environment. Okay, he's not talking about people, but in First John three one, he's talking about people. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Now he seems to be talking about people. These individuals, the world here. First John three, just one chapter away from First John two, he's talking about individuals. Right? In 1 John 3.13, the world hates you. He's not talking about the elect. There's no way 1 John 3.1 or 3.13 he's talking about the world as in the elect. Um, I think that here we have a refutation for the doctrine of limited atonement. And there's others, but this is a pretty pretty strong one. Um, 1 John 4.5, it talks about you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who's in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We're talking about false teachers. The world hears them. So the world here is individuals, and they're not Christians. That's the only defining quality they seem to have is they're not believers. So to limit First John's meaning of the world to the elect, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in the passage. Um, I think there might have been another verse I wanted to talk about here. Yeah, we know that we are of God in the whole world, whole world. Now it's the whole phrase. It's the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world can't mean the elect here. The sway of the wicked one is not, you know, all of the elect right, or, or something like that. Like here, the whole world has to include non-believers. It has to include non-believers. So in 1 John 2, 2, when we get whole world, it seems that in this book, this author is trying to say, not Christians. If Jesus has died for not only my sins, but for the sins of the whole world, then limited atonement's not true. A lot of Calvinists actually reject the doctrine of limited atonement. While I think it seems consistent with Calvinism to hold to limited atonement, it doesn't seem consistent with scripture. Uh, can you be a Calvinist and reject that doctrine? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and, and many do. Uh, also, there are many who do not. I, I think that scripture here has a strong refutation for that particular doctrine, even though I, I, I love my brothers and sisters that are Calvinists. Um, I don't demonize them or their theology, for that matter. I think it's just incorrect. 
and I seek to try to maintain as much unity as I can with my Calvinist brothers and sisters. You guys know, you you know, I love you. And I know, I know you love me as bro, as your brother in Christ. And on this, we, we disagree and we try to handle it as family. So that being said, thank you guys for joining. That's been 20 questions. Let me close this out in prayer. And if you click out now, you're unspiritual, right? Because if you click out before the prayer, you're obviously unspiritual. I'm joking. If you click out, goodbye. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> I'm going to pray. Um, Lord, we pray for uh, unity in the body of Christ, but also discernment and wisdom that we could have the ability to think clearly and biblically, to see where others are wrong, but to have wisdom to know how to handle it. Lord, as we try so hard to find truth, we're inevitably forced into situations where we continually think that person's wrong there, that person's wrong there. So give us great humility and love and compassion so we can handle knowledge with wisdom because uh, knowledge without wisdom is destructive. We, we don't want that. We want love to be the thing that unites us. But first, our love is for you and your truth. So we commit ourselves to that and to follow you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, there's question 2000. <laughs>